Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. Today we're joined by Paul Hubener, who's the author of a new book, Nature's Broken Clocks, Reimagining Time in the Face of the Environmental Crisis. Paul, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me here, Nick. It's a pleasure. Uh, So to begin with, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about you as a writer of time and critical time studies, which you kind of talk about in the book. And I was thinking that might be, you know, slightly surprising to people. Maybe time is spoken about a little bit less than space, perhaps. Um, So can you tell us about critical time studies and maybe how people react to your research, if you like? Yeah, well, it's funny that you put it that way because it was looking at things people have said about land and space that first started got me thinking about time. Um, My field that I was trained in is Canadian literature, so looking at, um, uh, which means literatures from Canada, uh, which includes literatures by uh, Indigenous writers and so on. There's a great diversity of work. And one of the uh, scholars um, who's worked in this field, Bill New, wrote a book about representations of land in literature within Canada. And he asks the question, um, how do representations of land within not just Canadian literature, but Canadian culture at large, uh, reflect different uh, orientations of power or relations of power? And I thought, this is a really amazing question to ask. And I wonder what would happen if somebody were to ask the same question about time. How do uh, representations of time in Canada or anywhere, um, reflect uh, power relations and social relations more generally. And I thought well, it would be amazing if somebody wrote a study about that. It's not going to be me because that's too ambitious and I, you know, I don't have that kind of energy. And so it sort of kept spinning around in my mind for a couple of weeks. And I thought, well, you know, uh, who knows how many chances I'll have to work on a project in this field. Maybe I should take on something big. And so I decided to try to write that project. And that eventually turned into my first book, Timing Canada. And so uh, the research that I was able to do, and of course, there are lots of people, once you start getting into any field, you find out that there are all kinds of people working in it. Um, People have made all kinds of uh, amazing arguments and developed insights about uh, the social functioning of time. And when you start looking into it, really, time operates as a form of power in just about every situation you can think of. Um, just to take an example from Canada again, and I'm sure people can find examples anywhere they are around the world. Um, Statistics Canada runs time use surveys every few years where they uh, get people to fill out surveys about how they spend their time, how they use their time. And if you look at the surveys over the years, it shows that the amount of free time that people have on average is shrinking. So we have less free time now than we did 15 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, But if you look at the data closely, it's not shrinking the same for everybody. It's shrinking faster for women than it is for men. And this is just one small example of the inequities of time that are out there. And people have noticed during the pandemic, 
um, for example, that the incredible demands of, uh, you know, running your kids' classes from your home when the schools are locked down and also trying to manage your job, those demands have tended to fall disproportionately on women. And some people have said this is kind of taking away some of the gender equity gains that we've fought for over the years. But maybe another way of putting that is that it's actually accelerating the inequities that were already happening. And these kinds of uh, ways that time functions as a form of power and inequity are just all over the place. And so it's a really rich field that everyone can have an, an investment in no matter what position we come from. The inequities are everywhere, but one thing we have in common is that we, we all have investments in time. And so it's been an amazing process for me and really exciting to, to try to dig into that field and, and understand more about how, how we think about time and how time works as a form of power. Mm-hmm. And I guess in the new book, you turn your analysis on the ecological crisis and how time is kind of represented or um, created in relation to uh, the ecological crisis, of course. So, and in the beginning, you call the climate crisis a crisis of time. So, could you unpack that a little bit for us, please? Mm-hmm. Well, it's important now more than ever, I think, for us to understand how time works in the environment, um, because you know, like you say in the book, I make the argument that the environmental crisis is a crisis of time, and it's true in a lot of different ways. We we understand that we're running out of time to cut carbon emissions. Um, biodiversity is collapsing. If you think of Extinction Rebellion, they have the hourglass symbol. It's a powerful symbol because time in many ways really is running out. And the inequities as well that are tied to environmental destruction are really accelerating. So the way that we understand time in the environment the way that we describe it is really crucial for figuring out how to respond to these problems. But obviously, we're having real trouble with this. We're really struggling to um, to catch up to the speed of ecological collapse. Um, but moving faster is uh, is not enough. We can't we can't just say, well, we need to move faster to fight to fight climate change or to save the environment because. Fighting acceleration with acceleration is not a long-term strategy. We do need to move faster in certain ways with cutting greenhouse gas emissions, but we can't just uh, approach the situation as saying everything needs to move faster and faster and faster. We have to take a more, more subtle or more nuanced approach and ask questions about how time operates as a form of power, what, um, you know, what information are we lacking about the way that we interact with, uh, with the environment in terms of time. And you know, one of the ironies of climate change that a lot of people have started to realize is that people who are least responsible for carbon emissions tend to feel the effects of climate change earlier and more deeply. Um, think of hurricanes in the Caribbean, for example. And this, this is one of the reasons that it can be problematic to use terms like the Anthropocene, which sort of creates the impression that we live within one big umbrella, that we live in this era of the Anthropocene and everyone everyone lives within it and human beings have caused it that's very universalizing when the truth is is much more nuanced different people have different forms of responsibility and feel the implications differently so time is one way that we can start to understand the the inequities that are built into environmental destruction Mm -hmm. and um i guess one of the things early on to do is to uh show the difference between kind of ways of measuring time 
and what you might call maybe planetary rhythms. Uh, and in the in the book, you do that by looking at leap years. So <laughs> I wonder if you could kind of illustrate the difference between human-made measurements and, um, yeah, more natural forms of time, if you like. Mm-hmm. Well, we create all kinds of cultural methods for measuring time. We have calendars, uh, we have days of the week, we have clocks. And because they're human constructs, they don't map perfectly onto what's happening in the world. If for no other reason than that ecosystems don't run on a single form of time, there's a lot of complexity going on in ecosystems. So the leap year is just one example because our calendar system doesn't perfectly line up with the spinning planet that revolves around the sun. We have to kind of finesse it a little bit and add leap years and and that's fine and it helps us organize our, our social environment. But sometimes um, we also have much more uh, complex methods for envisioning time, things like the idea of progress or the idea of, of economic growth. These are really metaphors of time that we use to understand um, that we use to understand human society. And all of these things, the calendar systems, the, the bigger metaphors about progress, these things interact with ecological time and they shape the way that we interact with the environment. But sometimes the human methods of measuring time uh, sort of take over in our minds and uh, can eclipse the importance of ecological time. So it's worthwhile to ask, well, what is what is ecological time or what is natural time? And the answer is that it's not a single thing, but it involves uh, endless complexity on a spinning planet full of diverse species. And one of the things I try to do in the book is to help us build an awareness of First of all, the fact that our human constructs for measuring time are are limited. Mm. And um, when we talk about human time, uh, how diverse is that? Because I assume that, you know, historically we're living in a particular moment, of course, now, but also in terms of the, the way people interact with the economy, the type of work they do, um, perhaps the certain kind of political beliefs they hold, perhaps. So you're thinking of developmental time. So how broad is this sort of idea of uh, specifically human time? Mm -hmm. Well, it's everywhere. And, um, you know, one of, one of the difficulties with talking about time is that it's very difficult even to define it. Um, it's time is famously difficult to define. And so uh, there's a scholar, Thomas Allen, who makes the, the really good point that we can never say exactly what time is, but we can identify who creates different forms of time and whose interests different uh, accounts of time can serve. And it's the, the diverse uh, inequities of time and experiences of time are visible everywhere. There's a, a scholar, uh, Sarah Sharma, who has this great book called In the Meantime. And she did things like interviewing uh, taxi drivers and hotel housemaids. And she makes the argument that people in certain lines of work, like those ones, sort of live on the margins of social time. They have to work bizarre hours in the middle of the night in order to serve the interests of um, high-powered business travelers who need to be uh, flying at all hours of the night. And so we can identify forms of time and different experiences of time, inequitable accounts of time, uh, anywhere we choose to look. And so one of my sort of missions here is to help people build a literacy 
uh, of time and to gain awareness of, of these different, of the ways that time operates differently in different circumstances uh, and for different people, because it really is everywhere. Mm. And uh, just talking about the literacy of time, I guess metaphors are very important for the way that time is kind of constructed and understood. Um, so what what do you think are the kind of telltale metaphors, if you like, for the way human time is constructed in relation to more ecological time? Is there any off the top of your head that you might be able to think of? Yeah, well, it's it's a fascinating thing. And we really can't talk about time any way that doesn't involve metaphors. There's almost just no way to do it. Even if you pick up a science magazine, they talk about time uh, using images of bouncing balls and uh, film reels and slices and cubes and funnels, and they're all metaphors. And even numbers and theory are metaphorical visions for how we can how we can understand something. And for me in the book, the, the biggest metaphor of time that I ask people to think about is the clock, because I see the clock as a metaphor machine. It's a machine that grinds out metaphors. You know, the time is 6.45. The time is 11.30. These are metaphors. And we read these metaphors all day long, and we run our lives on them. And that's a very useful thing. It helps us uh, coordinate ourselves if we didn't have clocks, Nick, we wouldn't be able to run this podcast because you wouldn't know what time I was going to show up. So we need the clocks or we need some method for orienting ourselves in a shared experience of time. Um, but this means that we become invested in this particular metaphor. People might tell you that they're not interested in poetry, but the clock is one of our very favorite poems and we read its metaphors all day long. And so the clock, as kind of an experiment in metaphor, is illuminating and it's deceptive. It's illuminating because it gives us that shared language for time. It gives us this sort of universal symbol and it provides clarity for us. And that's very important and very useful. But it's also deceptive because the clock ticks perfectly regularly all the time, the same for everyone. And that kind of uh, monolithic image can never really reflect uh, the living world of grief and love and climate change. So that's a key failure of the clock is that it creates the impression that time is always the same and always the same for everyone, that the that time ticks the same way for everybody on earth. And of course, that's not the case. We live in a world where experiences of time are very, very different, very diverse, and involve all kinds of inequities. So the clock in that sense uh, is not the neutral object that we might take it to be. And uh, the clock uh, the, the poem that the clock reads out for us with every tick of the second hand is really a reflection of ideology. And so uh, I'm saying that we need to be able to examine clocks critically as well as other forms uh, of what we might call metaphorical clocks in order to understand the forms of power that they enable. And I feel like clocks, in terms of the various metaphors they bring forth, tend to only look at sort of human types of time, even like the, I think, you know, the doomsday clock, it looks at, you know, nuclear destruction, perhaps more than ecological crisis, from my limited experience, the doomsday clock. But um, do you feel like um, any clock metaphors allow for an ecological understanding? I know you talk a lot about non-human animals and coral reefs and things. But what kind of metaphors come forth which you think might help us to understand the ecological crisis a bit better? It's a great question. One of the exciting things for me 
in writing this book and in talking to people about it is in trying to find new windows into understanding that kind of question, you know, anywhere around us. Are you willing to do a little experiment with me, Nick? Uh, okay. Yeah, of course. Yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Michelle Bastian at the University of Edinburgh is this amazing time scholar. She's got a really great definition of the clock. She says a clock is a device that signals change in some way that is meaningful to us. And that's a really suggestive definition because it means that clocks are not necessarily just the objects on our walls and the things on our phones that tell us what time it is, but we can see any object really as a clock if we are willing to look at how it signals change in some way that is meaningful to us. So I'm going to ask you to look around wherever you are right now, Nick, and choose an object of some kind. It might be something made by humans or something from your environment. So I'm, I'm in a home office right now and I can see a glass of water and uh, a dry erase marker. If I look out the window, I see telephone poles. Can you choose something for us, Nick, and tell us what you've chosen? Yeah, um, let me choose my notebook. One thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'll choose, I'll choose my notebook. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's made of paper? It's made of paper. It's sort of A4 size, ring, ring bound. Yeah. yeah. So we can see that notebook as a clock, as a device that signals change that is significant to us. If we're willing to see it that way, then that's what it becomes. And in what sense is that notebook a clock? Well, we can think about the way you use it. Maybe um, you take notes to remind yourself of something later on, and that helps you connect one time with another moment in time to resume your trains of thought and develop your thinking. Um, maybe the notebook reminds you of a particular time when someone gave it to you or when you had a really great idea that you wrote down. And that's a way for you to connect uh, the narrative of your life in a new way. We can think about the materials of the notebook. It's made of trees, right? These are trees that might have been growing before you and I were born, Nick. The, <laughs> this thing, this thing <laughs> has origins that extend beyond us into the past and also into the future. Where, what's going to happen with that notebook? Is it going to be recycled? Maybe it has plastic binding that's going to outlive human civilization. Uh, we can also think about the market forces that brought that book to a store where you purchased it. And so... Um, when I talk to people about uh, the topic that I'm looking at here in the book, I really try to encourage people to look around them and sort of see the world with fresh eyes to imagine everything around us as a clock. And it works not just for objects, but also for narratives, for the things that we say, for the things that we see and hear in the media and in movies and everywhere we look. Every every statement, every narrative is a kind of clock because it's invested and uh, reveals a particular form of time. Mm. And I, I also have a bottle of water here, and I'm thinking of water clocks now. And I'm, I'm thinking in your book, you talk about how I, the English word for time comes from the word for tide and all that kind of stuff. So do they used to be more kind of natural, naturally bound um, markers for time that people used to use? I assume they did before clocks. Um, used to be sure and still are, especially for people who really directly make a living from the land. If you're uh, growing food or uh, collecting food you know, in, in some way, you're going to have to rely on the temporalities of your ecosystem and relying only on the clock or the calendar is just not going to cut it for you. Um, the week is often seen as a really key uh, invention in that regard, because a calendar system has a basis in the environment, the idea that um, there are 
months that can be tied to the phases of the moon, for example, or that we reset the calendar every time we reach the winter solstice. There's, a, there's an ecological kind of basis behind calendar systems. But the, uh, the concept of the week, whether a week has seven days or some other number of days, because there have been uh, different forms of weeks in different societies with different numbers of days, it's really seen as the first um, measurement of time that really has no basis in the environment. There's nothing in the ecosystem that would suggest to us that there needs to be something that we call a week that repeats or that has a certain number of days. Mm-hmm. And um, just to go back to the book a little bit, I did want to talk about um, your literary scholar. So I want to talk a little bit about poetry, uh, if that's all right. Could you say, talk a little bit about the poets that you chose and how poetry might allow us to think in new ways about this uh, ecological crisis in time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm saying that we cannot help using metaphor when we talk about time. And so if we're going to be using metaphors anyway, we should look at the published body of work from our leading experts in metaphorical thought, and that's poetry. And poetry can really help us gain an awareness of assumptions we didn't know that we held. And that's really what a critical literacy of time is. A critical literacy of time comes about when we develop our ability to think critically about different uh, accounts or experiences of time. Literature, to me, is a really exciting way for us to do that because thoughtful literary works can shake us out of assumptions that we might have had about time. Uh, They can help us imagine uh, time in new ways or reveal implications that we hadn't thought of. And just to come back to uh, the idea of the days of the week, there's um, a play called Seven Stories by a playwright, Morris Panitch, and there's a character in this play uh, who he climbs up to the seventh story window of a building and he, he contemplates jumping out of it. And finally, someone asks him, why are you doing this? Why are you thinking about jumping out of the window? And he says, my faith in the days of the week has been seriously undermined. He's lost his belief in Friday and Saturday. He's lost in belief, his belief that there is such a thing as days of the week. And of course, the days of the week are fictions. They're narratives that we share and that we tell each other, and they're very useful. We coordinate ourselves with those narratives, uh, but they are narratives, and a good work of literature can really startle us into recognizing that. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about poetry may, maybe being something, maybe not for you because it's kind of your it's your job as well, but I, of course you clearly love it, but you know, it might be something people do in their free time as opposed to their work time. And I was wondering what these sort of metaphors that people come up with of people uh, losing time or time being stolen away from them by work and things like that. Um, how that might, how that has changed, how it's sort of historically specific to now and how it might be getting worse and worse, especially post-pandemic. In terms of people losing control over their own time? Uh, yes, kind of, but also the, the sort of metaphors uh, around that way of understanding time, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Well, the pandemic has really thrown a lot of our assumptions of time out the window, both in terms of everyday daily routines, but also in terms of big cultural visions of progress, because it's laid bare some of the uh, some, some of the assumptions that are ha- that uh, that run our world, right? So during the uh, the darkest phases of the pandemic, when things were really locked down, 
a lot of people didn't have jobs to go to anymore in the day, but other people had to go to their jobs every day, even if those jobs put them in danger. So that daily experience of time during the lockdowns was very different for different people. And the the really dangerous work that uh, tends to be considered essential tends to be done disproportionately by, by women and by people of color, you know, spending the day, on a video call from home is very different from spending the day in a crowded meat packing plant where you are called into work regardless of any lockdowns that are happening. And the the different the way that time has changed during the pandemic and during the lockdowns is just just incredible. I saw a story that teenagers who whose schools switched to uh, asynchronous online studying from home. Um, started to become nocturnal. They would do their studies in the middle of the night because it was asynchronous. They could study the material whenever they wanted. They would sleep during the daytime. Uh, their socializing also was at night online. And so they would be living in the same house with their families who they would barely even see. Um, and um, so the, the pandemic has it's exacerbated some inequities of time. And that gives us a responsibility to recognize that that's happening, but it's also maybe opened up different ways for us to kind of imagine how we encounter time and to think about how we might encounter time differently. The prime minister in New Zealand wanted to try to find a way to save the tourism industry with, with the shutdown of international air travel. And so she started encouraging employers to start using a four-day work week within New Zealand. And she said, if people have a three-day weekend, they can do they can travel within New Zealand more and we can have more domestic tourism. And this idea of the four-day work week is a really exciting way that we might question what we sort of thought was inevitable, which is that you work five days a week. Um, but it's not inevitable. It's something that we've created. The, the days of the week themselves are something that we've created. And so I guess I've got a hope that maybe if there's, if there's um, something useful that can come out of the pandemic, it's that we might convince ourselves to... Uh, to put some thought into which forms of time we want to continue or resume and carry with us and which ones we might want to change. And when we ask those questions, it's really crucial to remember that time is not just an individual thing. It's really a matter of social equity and power. Mm -hmm. And this idea that, you know, time is being taken away and being speeded up constantly and we live in an accelerated period and things like that that's kind of juxtaposed with certain ideas of like the quote unquote natural world is somewhere slow and as a repository for history. Um, and you talk about that in a book, in the book, I was wondering if you could kind of expand on those two differences that sometimes exist. Right. Well, there's sort of a, sort of a nostalgic vision of nature where the environment is a place where there are slow sunsets and we can we can go camping and enjoy a slower pace of life. And in the book, I look at uh, an ad that's been shown on TV a lot uh, in Canada, which is a, an ad for recreational vehicles, big camper vans that you can take out into the forest and camp. And in the ad, uh, the family lives in the city and their lives are totally frantic and fast paced. And they've got way too many activities with their kids and they can't figure out who needs to go in which car to organize their day and they're just exhausted and everything's happening at the same time and then uh, they take their rv and they go camping and finally they can relax because everything in the forest happens at a slow pace there's a campfire there's a guitar there's marshmallows uh, everything is very very slow and very relaxed 
And that really plays into that assumption or that nostalgic vision of nature as a place where we can take refuge from the acceleration society. It's a place where things happen slowly. And that's really, it's a problematic uh, vision for a couple of different ways. One is that it sort of depoliticizes our uh, relations to the environment and even our relations to time. And it says that, well, we've got big problems about uh, stress and overwork and anxiety and social acceleration. And instead of dealing with those problems in the societies where we live, maybe we can sort of run away from them for a, a long weekend using a combustion engine, no less. Once people arrive in the forest, well, they haven't really arrived in a secluded place that's totally separate from human existence because humans are in the forest. They've arrived there in the camper van. Whenever we um, pass through an ecosystem or live within an ecosystem, we're, we're part of it, right? So it's not a separate realm where things happen slowly. Um, and things, of course, do happen very quickly in the natural world, climate disasters being an obvious example. So this is just one way that we can... Uh, remind ourselves to ask questions about the assumptions that circulate about uh, what happens in, in uh, the environment in terms of time. So thank you again for coming on. And uh, uh, what, what are you working on now? Do you have a new book coming out soon? Uh, well, uh, I'm actually working on a project that uh, is making me quite excited right now. And I'm looking at uh, the critical study of sleep. Uh, sleep you know, sleep is a major preoccupation. People are obsessively worried about it. Everyone feels like they're not getting enough sleep. Uh, it's really seen as a crisis. Whether, whether it truly is a crisis is kind of up for debate, but there's a perception that it's a crisis. And sleep is in the media all the time. Uh, we'll see stories in the news about um, uh, whether you should wear blue light blocking glasses or whether you should avoid sleeping on your back when you're pregnant. And there are any different number of angles that the media takes toward sleep. But the one thing they all have in common is that when it comes to sleep, you're doing it wrong. And I'm wondering how we can sort of get beyond that individualistic approach of, you know, here's what you're doing wrong with sleep, and here's what, what you need to do, and instead ask, much as we've been asking about time, well, how does sleep operate socially as a form of power? Sleep is a political thing. So I've been starting to look at everything from uh, poems and movies to mattress ads. We've got mattress ads running that say things like sleep is the fuel that powers your day. And there's really an assumption within there that the purpose of sleep is to uh, enhance and support the culture of overwork and productivity and acceleration and wakefulness. And again, this is a place, a topic, I think, where literature can help us question some assumptions about sleep so that's what i'm working on right now that sounds amazing i look forward to reading that all right thank you thank you again for coming on paul it's been a real pleasure speaking to you oh i'm so grateful to be here thanks so much nick